Chapter Three, Part Two of Laddie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Laddie by Jean Stratton Porter. Chapter Three, Part Two. Mr. Pryor's Door. Halfway across the east side was a gully where Leon and I found the underground station, and from any place along the north you looked, you saw the little creek and the march. At the same time, the cowslips were most golden. The marsh was blue with flags, pink with smart weed, white and yellow with dodder, yellow with marsh buttercups having ragged frosty leaves, while the yellow and the red birds flashed above it, the red crying chip chip in short, sharp notes, the yellow spilling music all over the marsh while on wing. It would take a whole book to describe the butterflies. Once in a while, you scared up a big, wonderful moth, large as a sparrow. And the orchard was alive with doves, thrushes, catbirds, bluebirds, vireos, and orioles. When you climbed the fence or a tree and kept quiet, and heard the music and studied the pictures, it made you feel as if you had to put it into words. I often had meeting all by myself, unless Bobby and Hezekiah were along, and I tried to tell God what I thought about things. Probably he was so busy making more birds and flowers for other worlds, he never heard me. But I didn't say anything disrespectful at all, so it made no difference if he did listen. It just seemed as if I must tell what I thought, and I felt better, not so full and restless after I had finished. All of us were alike about that. At that minute, I knew Mother was humming, as she did a dozen times a day. I think when I read that sweet story of old, when Jesus was here among men, how he called little children as lambs to his fold, I should like to have been with him then. Lucy would be rocking her baby and singing, Hush, my dear, lie still in slumber. Candace's favorite she made up about her man, who had been killed in the war, when they had been married only six weeks, which hadn't given her time to grow tired of him if he hadn't been all her fancy painted. She arranged the words, like Ben Battle was a soldier bold, and she sang them to suit herself, and cried every single minute. They wrapped him in his uniform, they laid him in the tomb. My aching heart I thought would break, but such was my sad doom. Candace just loved that song. She sang it all the time. Leon said our pie always tasted salty from her ears. And he'd take a bite and smile at her sweetly and say, How uniform you get your pie, Candace. May's favorite was Joy Bell's. Father would be whispering over to himself the speech he was preparing to make at the next prayer meeting. We never could learn his speeches, because he read and studied so much it kept his head so full, he made a new one every time. You could hear Laddie's deep bass booming Bedouin love song for a mile. This minute it came rolling across the corn. Open the door of thy heart, and open thy chamber door, and my kisses shall teach thy lips the love that shall fade no more, till the sun grows cold and the stars are old, and the leaves of the judgment book unfold. I don't know how the princess stood it. If he had been singing that song where I could hear it, and I had known it was about me, as she must have known he meant her, I couldn't have kept my arms from around his neck. Over in the barn, Leon was singing, A life on the ocean wave, a home on the rolling deep, where codfish waggle their tails, mid tadfuls two feet deep. The minute he finished, he would begin reciting Marco Bazaris. And you could be sure that he would reach the last line, only to commence on the speech of Logan, chief of the Mingos, or any one of the fifty others. He could make your hair stand a little straighter than anyone else. The best teachers we ever had, or even Laddie, couldn't make you shivery and creepy as he could. 
Because all of us kept going like that every day, people couldn't pass without hearing. So that was what Mr. Pryor meant. I had a pulpit in the southeast corner of the orchard. I liked that place best of all, because from it you could see two sides at once. The very first little old log cabin that had been on our land, the one my father and mother moved into, had stood in that corner. It was all gone now, but a flower bed of tiny purple iris, not so tall as the grass, spread there, and some striped grass in the shadiest places, and among the flowers a lark brooded every spring. In the fence corner, mother's big white turkey hen always nested. To protect her from rain and too hot sun, father had slipped some boards between the rails about three feet from the ground. After the turkey left, that was my pulpit. I stood there and used the top of the fence for my railing. The little flags and all the orchard and birds were behind me. On one hand was the broad, grassy meadow, with the creek running so swiftly I could hear it, and the breath of the cowslips came up the hill. Straight in front was the lane running down from the barn, crossing the creek and spreading into the woods pasture, where the water ran wider and yet swifter. Big forest trees grew, and bushes of berries, pawpaws, willow, everything ever found in an Indiana thicket. Grass underfoot, and many wild flowers and ferns, wherever the cattle and horses didn't trample them. And bigger, wilder birds, many having names I didn't know. On the left, across the lane, was a large cornfield, with trees here and there, and down the valley I could see the big creek coming from the west, the big hill with the church on top, and always the white gravestones around it. Always, too, there was the sky overhead, often with clouds banked, until you felt if you could only reach them, you could climb straight to the gates that father was so fond of singing about sweeping through. Mostly there was a big hawk or a turkey buzzard hanging among them, just to show us that we were not so much, and that we couldn't shoot them unless they chose to come down and give us a chance. I set Bobby and Hezekiah on the fence and stood between them. We will open service this morning by singing the 35th hymn, I said. Sister Dover, will you pitch the tune? Then I made my voice high and squealy like hers, and sang, Come ye that love the Lord, and let your joys be known. Join in a song of sweet accord, and thus surround the throne. I sang all of it, and then said, Brother Hastings, will you lead us in prayer? Then I knelt down, and prayed Brother Hastings' prayer. I could have repeated any one of a dozen of the prayers the men of our church prayed, but I liked Brother Hastings best, because it had the biggest words in it. I loved words that filled your mouth, and sounded as if you were used to books. It began sort of sing-songy, and measured in stops, like a poetry piece. Our Heavenly Father, we come before thee this morning, humble worms of the dust, imploring thy blessing. We beseech thee to forgive our transgressions, heal our backsliding, and love us freely. Sometimes from there on it changed a little, but it always began and ended the same way. Father and Brother Hastings was powerful in prayer, but he did wish he'd leave out the worms of the dust. He said we were not worms of the dust, we were reasoning, progressive, inventive men and women. He said a worm would never be anything except a worm, but we could study and improve ourselves, help others, make great machines, paint pictures, write books, and go to an extent that must almost amaze the Almighty himself. He said that if Brother Hastings had done more plowing in his time, and had a little closer acquaintance with worms, he wouldn't be so ready to call himself and everyone else a worm. Now, if you are talking about cutworms or fishworms, Father is right. But there is that place where Charles his heel had raised, upon the humble worm to tread, 
and the worm lifted up its voice and spake thus to Charles. I know I'm now among the things uncomely to your sight, but by and by, on splendid wings, you'll see me high and bright. Now I'll bet a cent that is the kind of worm Brother Hastings said we were. I must speak to Father about it. I don't want him to be mistaken, and I really think he is about worms. Of course, he knows the kind that have wings and fly. Brother Hastings mixed him up by saying worms of the dust, when he should have said worms of the leaves. Those that go into little round cases in earth or spin cocoons on trees always live on leaves, and many of them rear the head, having large horns, and wave it in a manner far from humble. So father and brother Hastings were both partly right and partly wrong. When the prayer came to a close, where everyone always said, Amen, I punched Bobby and whispered, Crow, Bobby, crow. And he stood up and brought it out strong, like he always did when I told him. I had to stop the service to feed him a little wheat, to pay him for crowing, but as no one was there except us, that didn't matter. Then Hezekiah crowded over for some, so I had to pretend I was Mrs. Daniels feeding her children caraway cake, like she always did in meeting. If I had been the mother of children who couldn't have gone without things to eat in church, I'd have kept them at home. Mrs. Daniels always had the carpet greasy with cake crumbs wherever she sat, and mother didn't think the Lord liked a dirty church. Any more than we would have wanted a mussy house. When I had Bobby and Hezekiah settled, I took my text from my head, because I didn't know the meeting feeling was coming on me when I started, and I had brought no Bible along. Blessed are all men, but most blessed are they who hold their tempers. I had to stroke Bobby a little and pat Hezekiah once in a while to keep them from flying down and fighting, but mostly I could give my attention to my sermon. We have only to look around us this morning to see that all men are blessed, I said. The sky is big enough to cover everyone. If the sun gets too hot, there are trees for shade, or the clouds come up for a while. If the earth becomes too dry, it always rains before it is everlastingly too late. There are birds enough to sing for everyone, butterflies enough to go around, and so many flowers we can't always keep the cattle and horses from tramping down and even devouring beautiful ones. Like Daniel thought the lions would devour him, but they didn't. Wouldn't it be a good idea, O、oh、Lord, for you to shut the cows' mouths and save the cowslips also? They may not be worth as much as a man, but they are lots better looking, and they make fine greens. It doesn't seem right for cows to eat flowers, but maybe it is as right for them as it is for us. The best way would be for our cattle to do like that piece about the cow in the meadow, exactly the same as ours. And through it ran a little brook, where oft the cows would drink, and then lie down among the flowers that grew among the brink. You notice, O、oh、Lord, the cows did not eat the flowers in this instance, they merely rested among them. And goodness knows, that's enough for any cow. They had better done like the next verse, where it says, They liked to lie beneath the trees, all shaded by the boughs. Whene'er the noontide heat came on, sure they were happy cows. Now, O、oh、Lord, this plainly teaches that if cows are happy, men should be much more so. For like the cows, they have all thou canst do for them, and all they can do for themselves besides. So every man is blessed because thy bounty has provided all these things for him, without money and without price. If some men are not so blessed as others, it is their own fault and not yours. You made the earth and all that is therein, and you made the men. Of course, you had to make men different, so each woman can tell which one belongs to her. But I believe it would have been a good idea while you were at it, if you would have made all of them enough alike that they would all work. 
Perhaps it isn't polite of me to ask more of you than you saw fit to do. And then again, it may be that there are some things impossible, even to you. If there is anything at all, seems as if making Isaac Thomas work would be it. Father says that man would rather starve and see his wife and children hungry than to take off his coat, roll up his sleeves, and plow corn. So it was good enough for him when Leon said, Go to the ant, thou sluggard, right at him. So, of course, Isaac is not so blessed as some men, because he won't work, and thus he never knows whether he's going to have a big dinner on Sunday, until after someone asks him, because he looks so empty. Mother thinks it isn't fair to feed Isaac, and send him home with his stomach full, while Mandy and the babies are sick and hungry. But Isaac is some blessed, because he has religion, and gets real happy, and sings and shouts, and he's going to heaven when he dies. He must wish he'd go soon, especially in winter. There are men who do not have even this blessing, and to make things worse, O oh Lord, they get mad as fire and hit their horses, and look like all possessed. The words of my text this morning apply especially to a man who has all the blessings thou hast showered and flowered upon men who work, or whose people worked and left them so much money they don't need to, and yet a sadder face I never saw, or a crosser one. He looks like he was going to hit people, and he does hit his horse an awful crack. It's no way to hit a horse, not even if it balks, because it can't hit back, and it's a cowardly thing to do. If you rub their ears and talk to them, they come quicker, O oh, our Heavenly Father, and if you hit them just because you are mad, it's a bigger sin yet. No man is nearly so blessed as he who might be, who goes around looking killed with grief when he should cheer up, no matter what ails him, and who shuts up his door and says his wife is sick when she isn't, and who scowls at everyone, when he can be real pleasant if he likes, as some in divine presence can testify. So we are going to beseech thee, O Lord, to lay thy mighty hand upon the man who got mad this beautiful morning, and make him feel thy might, until he will know for himself, and not another, that you are not a myth. Teach him to have a pleasant countenance, an open door, and to hold his temper. Help him to come over to our house, and be friendly with all his neighbors, and get all the blessings you have provided for everyone. But please don't make him have any more trouble than he has now, for if you do, you'll surely kill him. Have patience with him, and have mercy on him, O Lord. Let us pray. This time I prayed myself. I looked into the sky just as straight and as far as I could see, and if I had any influence at all, I used it then. Right out loud, I just begged the Lord to get after Mr. Pryor, and make him behave like other people, and let the princess come to our house, and for him to come too, because I liked him heaps when he was lion-hunting, and I wanted to go with him again the worst way. I had seen him sail right over the fences on his big black horse, and when he did it in England, wearing a red coat, and the dogs flew over thick around him, it must have looked grand, but it was mighty hard on the fox. I do hope it got away." Anyway, I prayed as hard as I could, and every time I said the strongest thing I knew, I punched Bobby to crow, and he never came out stronger. Then I was sistered over, and started, Oh, come let us gather at the fountain, the fountain that never goes dry. Just as I was going to pronounce the benediction like father, I heard something, so I looked around, and there went he and Dr. Fenner. They were going toward the house, and yet they hadn't passed me. I was not scared, because I knew no one was sick. Dr. Fenner always stopped when he passed, if he had a minute, and if he hadn't, Mother sent someone to the gate with buttermilk and slices of bread and butter, and jelly an inch thick. 
When a meal was almost cooked, she heaped some on a plate, and he ate as he drove, and left the plate next time he passed. Often he was so dead tired, he was asleep in his buggy, and his old gray horse always stopped at our gate. I ended with Amen, because I wanted to know if they had been listening. So I climbed the fence, ran down the lane behind the bushes, and hid a minute. Sure enough they had. I suppose I had been so in earnest I hadn't heard a sound. But it's a wonder Hezekiah hadn't told me. He was always seeing something to make danger signals about. He never let me run on a snake, or a hawk get one of the chickens, or Patty Ryan come too close. I only wanted to know if they had gone and listened, and then I intended to run straight back to Bobby and Hezekiah. But they stopped under the greening apple tree, and what they said was so interesting, I waited longer than I should, because it's about the worst thing you can do to listen when older people don't know. They were talking about me. I can't account for her, said father. I can, said Dr. Fenner. She is the only child I ever had in my practice who managed to reach earth as all children should. During the impressionable stage, no one expected her, so there was no time spent in worrying, fretting, and discontent. I don't mean that these things were customary with Ruth. No woman ever accepted motherhood in a more beautiful spirit. But if she would have protested at any time, it would have been then. Instead, she lived happily, naturally, and enjoyed herself as she never had before. She was in the fields, the woods, and the garden constantly, which accounts for this child's outdoor tendencies. Then you must remember that both of you were at top notch intellectually, and physically fully matured. She had the benefit of ripened minds, and at a time when every faculty recently had been stirred by the excitement and suffering of the war. Oh, you can account for her easily enough, but I don't know what on earth you are going to do with her. You'll have to go careful, Paul. I warn you, she will not be like the others. We realize that. Mother says she doubts if she can ever teach her to sew and become a housewife. She isn't cut out for a seamstress or a housewife, Paul. Tell Ruth not to try to force those things on her. Turn her loose out of doors. Give her good books and leave her alone. You won't be disappointed in the woman who evolves. Right there I realized what I was doing, and I turned and ran for the pulpit with all my might. I could always repeat things, but I couldn't see much sense to the first part of that. The last was as plain as the nose on your face. Dr. Fenner said they mustn't force me to sew, and do housework, and Mother didn't mind the Almighty any better than she did the doctor. There was nothing in this world I disliked so much as being kept indoors, and made to hem cap and apron strings so particularly that I had to count the number of threads between every stitch, and in each stitch, so that I got all of them just exactly even. I liked carpet rags a little better, because I didn't have to be so particular about stitches, and I always picked out all the bright, pretty colors. Mother said she could follow my work all over the floor by the bright spots. Perhaps if I were not to be kept in the house, I wouldn't have to sew any more. That made me so happy, I wondered if I couldn't stretch out my arms and wave them and fly. I sat on the pulpit, wishing I had feathers. It made me pretty blue to have to stay on the ground all the time, when I wanted to be sailing up among the clouds with the turkey buzzards. It called to my mind that place in McGuffey's Fifth, where it says, Sweet bird, thy bower is ever green, thy sky is ever clear, thou hast no sorrow in thy song, nor winter in thy year. Of course, I never heard a turkey buzzard sing. Laddie said they couldn't, but that didn't prove it. He said half of the members of our church couldn't sing. But they did, and when all of them were going at the top of their voices, it was just grand. So maybe the turkey buzzard could sing if it wanted to, 
seemed as if it should, if Isaac Thomas could. And anyway, it was the next verse I was thinking most about. Oh, could I fly, I'd fly with thee. We'd make with joyful wing our annual visit o'er the globe, companions of the spring. That was so exciting, I thought I'd just try it. So I stood on the top rail, spread my arms, waved them, and started. I was bumped in fifty places when I rolled into the cowslip bed at the foot of the steep hill, for stones stuck out all over the side of it, and I felt pretty mean as I climbed back to the pulpit. The only consolation I had was what Dr. Fenner had said. That would be the greatest possible help in managing father or mother. I was undecided about whether I would go to school or not. Must be perfectly dreadful to dress like for church and sit still in a stuffy little room and do your abs and bez and biz and baws all day long. I could spell quite well without looking at a schoolhouse and read, too. I was wondering if I ever would go at all when I thought of something else. Dr. Fenner had said to give me plenty of good books. I was wild for some that were already promised me. Well, what would they amount to if I couldn't understand them when I got them? That seemed to make it sure I would be compelled to go to school until I learned enough to understand what the books contained about birds, flowers, and moths, anyway, and perhaps there would be some having fairies in them. Of course, those would be interesting. I never hated doing anything so badly in all my life, but I could see, with no one to tell me, that I had put it off long as I dared. I would just have to start school when Leon and May went in September. Tilly Barr, who lived across the swamp near Sarah Hood, had gone two winters already, and she was only a year older and not half my size. I stood on the pulpit and looked a long time in every direction, into the sky the longest of all. It was settled. I must go. I might as well start and have it over. I couldn't look anywhere right there at home and not see more things I didn't know about than I did. When mother showed me in the city, I wouldn't be snapped up like hot cakes. I'd be a blockhead no one would have. It made me so vexed to think I had to go. I set Hezekiah on my shoulder, took Bobby under my arm, and went to the house. On the way, I made up my mind that I would ask again, very politely, to hold the little baby. And if the rest of them went and pigged it up straight along, I'd pinch it if I got a chance. End of chapter 3